Well, good morning. Uh, good to see you again. You clearly uh, liked the accent, so you came back. You didn't have a baldy clue what I was talking about, but the accent sounded good, so you're back. Okay, so uh, yesterday we looked at uh, worship in the Bible. Uh, today we're going to look at worship in history. And then this third lecture will be worship today. The title of this talk is uh, Reformation Worship. Uh, I see it's a different title. This is what I do. I, I get asked to speak at conferences like six months ago. I give them titles and then basically the night before I make up new titles. <laughs> so the title in your building is Retrieving Reformed Worship Today, A History of Worship Reform in the 16th Century. That's, that's a good title. I, I gave it. <laughs> So the other title is Reformation Worship, Why We Do What We Do in Church. Similar thing. Okay, uh, let me begin where the Reformation began in 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany. And let me take you to Schlosskirche, the castle church, where it's believed that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. But I don't want to take you to the church door. I want to take you to the church steeple. The castle church's steeple was redesigned in 1883, and today it looks more like a, a tall tower than a steeple, or as you say here, a tower. <laughs> uh, before the War of Independence, in this <clears throat> part of the world, it was called tar. It was pronounced tar. A tall tar. Okay, then a steeple, and around the tower are the words, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. A mighty fortress is our God. The words are from Luther's famous hymn based on Psalm 46, in which God is described as our fortress, as our strong tower. Uh, for Luther, Psalm 46 was the Reformation hymn. Uh, God was the mighty fortress of his people as they fought against the corruption and idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church. And this battle cry of the Reformation from Psalm 46 is now permanently captured in the very architecture of the castle church in Wittenberg. They changed the steeple into a tower. The structure of the church now tells the story of the Reformation, and that's because structures tell stories. Structures tell stories. I'm borrowing a phrase from Brian Chapel in his excellent book, Christ-Centered Worship. Structures tell stories. I mean, just think about the structure of churches. <clears throat> the high roofs of the old church buildings speak of God's transcendence. When you're in them, you want to look up. And that's the idea. Lift up your heads to worship God in heaven above. Um, think of the baptismal font in an old church. Where is it placed? Not at the front, but at the door, just inside the entrance to the church. Its placement communicates that baptism is the way one enters into the visible community of the Christian church. And so I think, rightly, baptism should be done at the door um, to convey that symbol. In the Anglican church, they have a a beautiful and deeply symbolic tradition of performing baptisms at the church door. The congregation turns around and faces the door as the little child 
or a converted adult is baptized and brought in to the Christian church. Structures tell stories. Architecture and furniture reveals theology. And when the Reformation was sparked in 16th century Europe, it began to change everything. Art, culture, music, civil laws, government structures, school curriculum, and yes, even church architecture. And the placement of church furniture were all affected by the Reformation because the gospel affects the whole of life. But in relation to the church, the Reformation did not just shape the physical structures outside and inside the church buildings. It also began to shape the spiritual structures of what you do when you come to church. In other words, it began to shape the church liturgy. Because for the reformers, the content and order of the liturgical elements in a worship service communicated gospel truths just as much as the structure of the architecture or the placement of the furniture did. The reformers understood this one basic truth, structures tell stories, and the structure of the worship service tells the story of the gospel. So the reformers set about reforming the worship service. And this is where we see that the Reformation was not just about the recovery of true and pure doctrine, it was also about the recovery of true and pure worship. Yes, the Reformation concentrated on key doctrines, uh, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, solus Christus, by Christ alone, sola fide, sola fide, by faith alone, and soli deo gloria, by uh, for God's glory alone. These were the doctrines that were recaptured. But these doctrines were never meant to be recovered as mere ends in themselves. Theology always leads to doxology. Hence why the fifth, final, and crowning sola of the Reformation solas is soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Sola fide, by faith alone, was an immediate concern. Soli deo gloria was the ultimate concern. Basic recovery of the true gospel leads to to true reformation of worship. You see this in how John Calvin spoke about his own conversion. He spoke about being rescued not primarily from works righteousness, though that was true. Calvin spoke of being rescued from idolatry. You see it in his institutes as well. He ends the four books of his institutes, this in-depth, analysis of the Christian faith, he ends it with three simple words, God be praised. God be praised. Uh, you see it in the priority Calvin gave to providing his churches in Geneva and Strasbourg with gospel-centered liturgies, which were free of Roman Catholic error. Calvin wrote two church liturgies, one for the church in Geneva, then he goes off into exile for three years back to Strasbourg, or goes to Strasbourg, um, writes a liturgy there. And when he returns, he reforms his Genevan liturgy in light of uh, the Strasbourg liturgy. Um, this is how important worship was for Calvin. And it wasn't just for Calvin. It was the same for many of the reformers. Nearly every reformer in the 16th century wrote a church liturgy. 
Martin Luther in Wittenberg wrote one, John Ecolampadius in Basel, William Farrell in Neuchâtel, Diebold Schwartz in Strasbourg, Uldrich Zwingli in Zurich, Martin Bützer in Strasbourg, John Bugenhagen of Denmark, Norway and Iceland, John A. Lasko and Martin Macronius of the Dutch Strangers Church in London, Thomas Cranmer in the Church of England, John Knox, Church of Scotland, Heinrich Bullinger and Ludwig Lavader in Zurich, Zachary Ursinus of the Palatinate Church in Germany, Peter de Thennis of the church, uh, Dutch Church in the Netherlands, and the English Puritans led by Thomas Cartwright, who fled to Middleburg in the Netherlands. All of these reformers in the 16th century wrote church liturgies. Um, and uh, a friend and I have collated those. We've got them freshly translated. Uh, you can buy them in a book called Reformation Worship, Liturgies from the Past for the Present. Uh, also very useful as a doorstop. It's about <laughs> 600 pages long. My wife uses it to brush her teeth. She stands on it and uh, brushes her teeth with it. But if you're interested in liturgy, you can also open it and uh, read some of the liturgies in there. Uh, now, before we come to exactly what the reformers recovered and reformed in their worship services, I want to explain how they came to reform church liturgy. Uh, they reformed their worship in three ways. Number one, they returned to the Bible. They returned to the Bible. Very simple point, but it's true. Uh, they applied the Reformation principle of sola scriptura and semper reformanda. Sola scriptura, the scripture is the final authority. Semper reformanda, always reforming the church back to the Bible. That's the first thing they did. The second thing they did was they consulted church tradition. So while the reformers believed in sola scriptura, they did not believe in solo scriptura or nuda scriptura. Okay, um, that is, they did not just go back to the Bible and say, we're only going to look at the Bible. We believe in only the Bible. No, they said, we believe that the Bible is the final authority in faith and practice. And that tradition is an authority, but it's not the final authority. And that tradition sometimes needs reformed and refined in light of the final authority, the norming norm, the Bible. And so the reformers returned to the ancient liturgy of the church. They returned to the liturgy of the early church. And what they wanted to do was reform their church liturgy back to that early church liturgy and get rid of all the corruptions that had come in in the medieval period uh, through the Roman Catholic Church. What they found when they went back to the ancient church liturgy that was that is that as early as the second century, uh, the early church fathers had divided public worship into two parts. Uh, there was the liturgy of the word, and there was the liturgy of the sacrament. And this basic structure was foundational to all Christian worship right up to the 16th century. And the reformers continued this basic structure, and it remains with us today. We have our worship service of the word and once a month, every other week, or every three or four months, we have the liturgy of the sacrament on the end of the worship service. So now the reformers also continued the common elements of public worship that had passed down from the ancient church, some of which had become corrupted by the Catholic Church, 
but nevertheless were good elements. So they continued the elements of adoration, confession, assurance, thanksgiving, petition, instruction, communal response, offertory, psalms and hymns, sermon, consecration, creeds, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, communion, administration of the sacraments. They continued those things. The three core elements that were there in early church liturgy uh, were the creeds, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And the Reformers uh, continued those. But they also reformed the other elements in different ways, and I'll come to that later. The third thing they did, they returned to the Bible, they consulted church tradition, and the third thing was they plagiarized each other. Okay? This is pre-plagiarism laws. Okay? They borrowed from each other. When you study these 26 liturgies, in your bathroom, if you get off the book, open it up. What you'll find is that actually they borrowed phrases. They borrowed whole prayers from each other and borrowed phrases from each other. So there was a cross-fertilization during the 16th century in Reformation liturgies. Um, you know, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, uh, lift up your hearts to the Lord. Uh, we lift them up to the Lord. And then the minister says, it is right and, and meet so to do. Yeah, you know those words uh, to worship God, right and meet so to do. Well, those words actually come, I think it's from Diebold Schwartz in Strasbourg, whose liturgy was in the 1530s, uh, even 1520s maybe, uh, earlier, way earlier than the Book of Common Prayer. So Cranmer was reading all of these guys and picking up these these phrases. Um, so, and then you see this cross fertilization came about because uh, of people who had studied with each other. So, uh, Martin Butzer he, in Strasbourg, he studied Martin Luther's liturgy in Wittenberg, and that started to influence his liturgy in Strasbourg. Then Calvin goes from Geneva to Strasbourg, and he adopts Butzer's liturgy when he's in his three year exile in Strasbourg. And on his deathbed, he said, as for the Sunday prayers, that is, as for the liturgy in Geneva, I took the form of Strasbourg and borrowed the greater part of it. Okay? Basically admitting plagiarism on his deathbed. Okay? <laughs> uh, so Calvin's liturgy then influenced John Knox, who spent some time in Geneva, uh, which then uh, influenced the Scottish liturgy, and not just the Scots, but the Irish uh, the English, the Dutch, the Germans, they were all influenced by Calvin's liturgy. Indeed, much of how we worship today can be traced back to, to Calvin's liturgy. Which brings us now to what exactly these reformers included uh, in their worship services. Uh, let's begin with those elements in the service of the word. Remember, two, two kinds of liturgy, service of the word, service of the sacrament. So uh, let's begin with the service of the word, the liturgy of the word. Uh, these are the general elements that make up Christian worship. I'm not going to deal with every element. Uh, the first was adoration. Adoration. This is how Christian worship has begun for 2,000 years. Indeed, even since the beginning of time and throughout redemptive history, we might say that Christian worship has always begun with a call to adore God, to adore his greatness and goodness. Isn't that what we saw last night? In the Garden of Eden, when God called Adam to worship through his word, 
God was calling Adam to adore his goodness at the abundant provision of every tree, to adore his greatness and authority as uh, uh, the one who had said, you shall not eat from this tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a command and a call to worship God, to come and enjoy him for who he was. This was the beginning of worship. You see it when Israel are called to worship God at Mount Sinai. So Adam called to worship God at Mount Eden is called to adore God. Same with Israel at Mount Sinai. They're confronted by the awesome majesty in the thunder and the lightning and the fire on Mount Sinai. And also by the goodness of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery in Egypt. You see it when Isaiah is in his temple. He sees the thrice holiness of God, which entails his greatness and his goodness. You see it when Solomon dedicates the temple upon its completion. He speaks of God's greatness. Not even the heaven of heavens can continue. He speaks of God's goodness, God's faithfulness to his people throughout redemptive history. You see it in the book of Revelation in chapter 4, where the angels and the people in heaven acknowledge the greatness of of God as creator. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and are created. And then they acknowledge his goodness in the provision of a sacrifice through the Lamb who was slain. This is how Christian worship begins, with a call to come and adore the goodness and greatness of God. And this component of Christian worship has been present for 2,000 years. The Roman liturgy, that's what the ancient church liturgy was called. The Roman liturgy began with a choral introit, that is a hymn of praise sung by the choir. Uh, Luther reformed this by making the whole congregation sing that song. This was the big change in Reformation worship. The whole congregation would participate most of the time rather than just have the choir doing most of the singing. Calvin began his liturgy with a scriptural text. Anybody here know the text Calvin would have read out? Um, Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And still to this day in the Dutch tradition, if you go to a traditional Dutch service, that's what the service begins with. Please stand for the call to worship. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, the Westminster Directory of Worship in 1645 uh, developed this focus on adoring God uh, or God calling us to worship by giving it the title, a call to worship, followed by a prayer of adoration. That's how the Westminster divines uh, uh, applied this idea of beginning worship with hearing God call us to worship and a prayer of adoration. Uh, so whether it was a hymn of praise or a scriptural reading or a prayer, Christian worship begins with, a, with adoration. The second or the next element of worship follows quite naturally, uh, confession of sin. Having adored who God is, in himself and what he's done for, it's natural that we then acknowledge who we are, especially with regard to our sin. This was the response of Israel at Sinai 
when they were faced with the awesome majesty of God. They said, we don't want to hear the voice of God in the cloud and the fire, otherwise we'll be destroyed. So they asked Moses to go and intercede for them, to speak on God's behalf. Uh, it was the response of Isaiah in the temple when confronted with his sin. Uh, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The acknowledgement of sin is present in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And it's also there in Revelation chapter 5 with the lamb who was slain for the sins of his people. So confession of sin after seeing who God is, is a biblical move. It's been present in Christian worship for 2,000 years. In the ancient Roman liturgy, this took the form of singing after an initial element of adoration. It took the form of singing the Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy upon us. The Kyrie eleison. Luther in his liturgy, continued this Roman tradition. But other reformers like Butzer, Calvin, Cranmer, they introduced a prayer of confession, either said by the minister or said by the whole congregation. So Cranmer's prayer of confession, perhaps one of the best known, one of the ones that I think is just one of the most beautiful prayers, uh, prayer of confession, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. These very memorable prayers. Cranmer was a literary genius. Uh, everything was done in threes. If you're reading the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, you'll notice everything's done in threes, which is a very helpful way to memorize things. After the confession of sin, there was an assurance of pardon. So having confessed our sins, the gospel proclaims us pardon through faith in Christ, and the Reformers wanted to convey this to their congregations. Again, this was thoroughly biblical. Just think of Israel at Sinai. Immediately following the giving of the law at Sinai are the commands concerning the tabernacle and the sacrificial system that would ensure God's people had access to God. Isaiah confesses his sins and then God sends a seraphim to collect a coal from the altar of sacrifice and touch his lips so that he is cleansed at the very place where he had sinned. The same kinds of assurance are there in Solomon's temple prayer of a provision of God's forgiveness. And then again in Revelation chapter 5, with the Lamb who was slain. In the history of the church, this element in Christian worship has been expressed differently. In the ancient Roman liturgy, they sang the Gloria at this point, which contained the words, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. This was the assurance given to the congregation after having confessed their sins. And then there was the salutation, the Lord be with you, uh, where there was an assurance of God's ongoing presence with his people. Uh, Luther continued this tradition of singing the Gloria. Uh, Calvin expressed the pardon 
in spoken words uh, said by the minister uh, from Scripture that reassured the people of God's forgiveness, or uh, a psalm with a related theme of forgiveness. Interestingly, when Calvin, uh, he picked up this idea of the assurance of pardon from Butzer, where Butzer, as the minister would, on behalf of God, uh, uh, announce that the people had been forgiven uh, through their repentance and that the assurance of forgiveness of sins was theirs by faith in Christ. Calvin picks this up, puts it in his Strasbourg liturgy, but when he goes back to Geneva, the magistrates say, that's a wee bit too Catholic for us, Calvin. John. Jean, Jean, Jean. That's a bit Catholic for us. And they refused to let him do it. And so what they did was the congregation would remain standing after the confession of sin in protest uh, of him trying to give this assurance of pardon. So he dropped the assurance of pardon from his liturgy. But he had it there in his Strasbourg liturgy. Um, uh, it was too Catholic, as I said. But John Knox, who was no Roman Catholic, uh, he kept it in his liturgy. He wanted it to be an explicit part of his service where the minister would announce in the name of Christ that God forgives the sins of those who repent of their sins. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful element of Christian worship where we hear those words of assurance. Uh, then after that, there's the element of thanksgiving. Naturally follows the assurance of forgiveness of sins. This theme is seen in Solomon as he thanks God for his provision in various ways. It's there in Revelation as the saints respond to the Lamb who was slain as they worship and praise him. In the history of Christian worship, this thanksgiving is taken various forms in the ancient Roman liturgy. There was a red colic, that is a, a set prayer, which was a prayer for God to, forget, to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit so that we might perfectly love him and magnify his holy name like Cranmer had said in his prayer. Luther continued with this tradition of the colic, but for Butzer and Calvin, they wanted to respond with a song. And so they put in a psalm uh, as a way of expressing thanksgiving for the assurance of the pardon of sins. Uh, some reform services inclu included the offering at this point uh, as a form of responding in thanksgiving. After the thanksgiving element, there was petition. Um, this most often took the form of a colic or uh, a prayer of intercession. But in Calvin's case, uh, he did something quite interesting. Uh, some traditions had the Ten Commandments read before the confession of sin, the reading of the law, uh, which sort of the law acts like a mirror on your soul, exposing your sin, and then you confess your sins to God. Well, Calvin changed the order of where the Ten Commandments appeared. He put the Ten Commandments after the confession of sin and after the pardon of assurance. And each commandment was interspersed with the people saying the Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy upon us. You shall have no other gods before you. Lord, have mercy upon us. You shall not make a carved image of anything in heaven above or on the earth or in the, under the earth or in the sea. Lord, have mercy upon us. And he did this all the way through the Ten Commandments. For Calvin, he was still doing the sort of reading of the law, confession of sin going on there. But he was also saying that the law is our way of life. 
This is how we live. Having been forgiven, this is how we live. We keep the law. And yes, we will still need forgiveness because we're not going to keep it perfectly. Hence the curia eleison interspersed throughout. But that was his point. We walk in the way of the law. In the Westminster Presbyterian tradition, this petition element would later become known as the intercessory prayer or the pastoral prayer, as uh, it's known today. Uh, interestingly, uh, Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer places this prayer after the sermon. Uh, and if I was to be a pastor again, I, th I think that's where I would actually put the intercessory prayer. My older brother's a minister in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland. He, he works with Sinclair Ferguson, who's now his associate minister uh, in Aberdeen. And my brother has done this for a number of years now. He moved the intercessory prayer to after his sermon. And he said he found it's so much easier to pray the pastoral prayer having heard God speak through the word. He says it's far more natural then to respond to God in prayer. Uh, what it also means is people aren't falling asleep in your sermon because you move it earlier in the service. <laughs> so I, I really think that's probably why he's done it because he has a very monotone voice. So... So, it's interesting where it can go. Uh, in Be Thou My Vision, the little liturgy that I have put together for your daily worship, you'll see I've put it after the scripture reading. Uh, uh, so, that's where I think it should go. Instruction. Okay, so after intercession or petition, instruction, this element involved Bible reading and exposition. Uh, this was perhaps one of the biggest reforms made by the reformers, where they made expository preaching the central aspect of the liturgy of the word, this uh, service of the word. In the Roman liturgy, the sermon had not been central. Over the centuries, the sermon had been sidelined, and the mass, the Eucharist, had become the central thing. Um, Luther said that uh, the problem with this was then when they did preach in the Roman church, it was all sort of the preacher's preferences and things like that. Listen to Luther's complaint. He says, For if spiritual understanding and the Spirit himself do not speak through the preachers, the end of it will be that everyone will preach what he wills, and instead of the gospel and its exposition, they will be preaching again about blue ducks. It's this random topic. It's blue ducks. Well, we're going to hear this morning about blue ducks again, you know. Uh, so for Luther... The word became central again. And again, this, this affected structure, uh, architecture in churches, furniture. Where did the pulpit previously belong? Off to the side and the altar, the, the, the place where you received the mass was central. And in the Reformation, the pulpit came back to being central and the table placed in front. Okay? Um, so... It also started to affect the architecture. Now, prior to um, the reading or preaching of the word, the reformers introduced a prayer for illumination. A prayer for illumination. Uh, interestingly, it was, it was prayed before the Bible reading, not just before the sermon. I think most churches today, it's, you read your Bible and then afterwards you pray for help as we attend to listen. That's, that's fine. It's not wrong. But it's interesting, I think, that in the Reformation liturgies, they tended to put it before the reading of Scripture, which I, I like. Uh, 
It was a prayer to ask God to open their eyes, to see wondrous things in his law. Um, John Owen once said, without the Holy Spirit, we might as well burn our Bibles. You know, he wasn't denying the inspiration of Scripture, that it is powerful in and of itself. And yet, it's true, isn't it? The, the, some people read Scripture, and it's like another book to them. Other people read Scripture, and it's the sword of the Spirit piercing their heart. Without the Holy Spirit, we might as well burn our Bibles. And that's what we're doing in the prayer for illumination. We are asking God to open our hearts, to shed his light into our minds and hearts as we hear the scriptures read and expounded. Um, okay, uh, there was also the Lord's Prayer, as I mentioned. There were three key elements from the ancient Roman liturgy continued. Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, and the Creeds. The Lord's Prayer was, was said uh, together, which I think is a good thing to do in worship. And then there were the Creeds, uh, almost to a man. Every week, the Reformers had their congregations recite one of the historic creeds. Uh, the main creed was the Apostles' Creed, uh, but Luther, Diebold Schwartz in Strasbourg, and Thomas Cranmer also used the Nicene Creed. Um, Calvin, for those who say Calvin was an exclusive Samnite, uh, you know, he was into exclusive Samnity, um, Calvin had his congregation sing the Apostles' Creed. So... Slightly awkward for the folk who are arguing that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe it was the 151st Psalm or something. Uh, okay, so uh, Cranmer was alone in introducing the Athanasian Creed. And I, I've put this creed, creed into the Be Thou My Vision. I've split it into three. It's very long. It's very long. If you, if you don't know, it's probably be used by ministers who don't have much to say one Sunday. They're like, let's do the Athanasian Creed <laughs> this Sunday. And then nobody really notices the sermon was 10 minutes shorter. So there you go. If, uh, if you see the Athanasian Creed appear in the next few weeks, you know what Michael's doing there. <laughs> you know what he's doing. It's this long creed. And I actually think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful creed. It's orthodox. Uh, but Cranmer was the only one to really... Uh, use it. But it was part of uh, the Reformed liturgy. Uh, Anglicanism's part of the Reformation Church. So uh, it, it's quite, it's in Be Thou My Vision. I've split it into three. And uh, it's really quite succinct. When I was a minister in Cambridge, uh, we introduced the creeds, apostles, Nicene, and then the Athanasian, we split it into five parts. And it was just a short paragraph. I had the most feedback from the congregation after doing the Athanasian Creed. <laughs> because it was so new to them, but it is so succinct and clear on uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, now why did they introduce the creed, or, or sorry, keep saying the creed in the service? Well, for lots of reasons. Uh, they were in a predominantly illiterate culture. Uh, people couldn't read. Um, and so saying the creed was one way of teaching them the essential elements of the Christian faith each week. But more than that, the reformers wanted to demonstrate that the Roman church was not some aberration. It was not some mistake. It was not some cult that had been created, which is what the Roman Catholic Church was really trying to say it was. What the reformers were trying to say was they were the true church. 
They were standing in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude chapter 3. For the reformers saying the creeds aligned the church with the true Christian church and reminded God's people of the Lord's providential care for his church throughout the ages. The creeds were formed in the wars of heresy and heterodoxy, and the church was to remember her past. Uh, a church that doesn't say the historic creeds on a regular basis is like a nation that, has, that no longer remembers her war of independence uh, or her fight for freedom. She's forgotten where she's come from. She's forgotten who she is. She has despised her mother. Uh, for the great historic creeds are the wisdom of her mother passed down through the centuries and across the millennia. Now, you may be wondering, am I some sort of closet, closet Roman Catholic here talking about the church as our mother? Well, Cyprian, the early church father, said this, you cannot have God for your father if you have not the church for your mother. And we all go, get the, get the Roman Catholics out of here. Uh, and and who, quotes, who quotes Cyprian in his institutes? John Calvin. And the, the image is a beautiful image. The church is our mother in the sense of providing nourishment for us. Uh, and how did you become a Christian? Either you were brought up in a church, and so you heard the gospel from the church congregation, from the minister, from your parents. So your mother church gave you birth spiritually as a means of grace. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit, but you know what I'm saying, a means of grace. Uh, or if you were converted from outside the church family, it was probably a Christian who witnessed to you, gave you a Bible, you heard something on the radio. It was the church that God used to bring you to new life. So that's the image. And not just bringing you to life like a mother does, giving birth, but also nourishing you. This was Calvin's point. The church nourishes her children. And so the point was that when we worship, the reformers said we ought to look like our mother. If our mother gave birth to us, if we say we're being nourished by our mother, we ought to look like our mother. And so saying the creed tied the church to its ancient roots. And uh, I think a church today that doesn't say the creed, that sort of everything looks like it belongs in the 2020s, uh, is a church that lost its historical moorings, you know. And so what we want is to be able to worship together in a way that sounds like we belong in the 21st century. There's nothing worse than going into church service and you feel like you go back into a time warp to the 1950s. Uh, we should sound like we belong in the 21st century, uh, but we should also look like we've been here for over 2,000 years. Does that make sense? Uh, so we've got to stand in the stream of Christian tradition. Now, let me just say one thing. I was brought up in the Christian Brethren movement, Anabaptist movement. Um, uh, Mennonite, I think, would probably be the closest uh, affiliation here. And the dear old brethren, the elders that taught me faithfully the scriptures, uh, they had this big thing, we have no creed but the Bible. We have no creed but the Bible. And it was really an expression of solo scriptura. Uh, and in saying we have no creed but the Bible, they just stated their creed. Okay? <laughs> this was their creed. So you, you can't avoid having a creed. It's not whether you'll have a creed, it's just which creed you're going to have. Okay? And so um, 
I don't think we should be nervous of this idea of saying a creed in our church services. It's been done for 2,000 years. And I'll, I'll come back to this in my next session about how I think it's also biblical. Paul speaks about certain things we confess as Christians, and I think some of Paul's letters are early creeds that were said and known in the Christian church. Okay, so that's the creed. Okay, each of the formers said a creed in their church service. Then there was the offering. Okay, uh, this was another element in the worship services and was most often placed after the sermon. Um, uh, I think it's a kind of response. Okay, and hopefully because the people thought it was a good sermon, they give a wee bit, <laughs> give, a, give a wee bit more. Uh, okay. Uh, and often these last three elements, Lord's Prayer, Creed, Offering, they were often the bridge between the service of the Word to the service of the sacrament. Okay, they were often used, Lord's Prayer, Creed, Offering. They were often the bridge to transfer between the two. Okay, that was Liturgy of the Word. Uh, what about Liturgy of the Sacrament? Uh, this is where some of the most obvious Reformation of Church Liturgy took place the liturgy of the sacrament, the liturgy of the mass. And now the reformers did various things to ensure that this whole idea of a sacrifice being made through a priest was removed from the service. Uh, because if it remained, then for them, a false gospel was being preached, that Christ was being sacrificed on a weekly basis in the mass, that a priest, a human priest, was the one interceding for the people, etc., uh, so a couple of things the reformers did. First of all, they had the minister dress uh, without any of the Old Testament vestments um, that spoke of a priestly sacrifice. So the, the Roman Catholic uh, priestly attire was very much like the Old Testament, okay? Because they still thought Christ was being sacrificed each week. So the reformers changed their ministerial dress. Uh, some of them still had some kind of gown. You've got the Geneva gown that Calvin preached in. Um, you also had others who said you should just look like your congregation. Okay? And uh, we'll, we can maybe in the Q&A get into what should a minister wear in the pulpit. Okay? <laughs> well, if you all dress down, should he dress down? Okay? Or should he always look different to the people? So reformers had different views on this. Okay? When I was brought up, we had the whole thing of, uh, would you go to see the queen dressed like that? You know? And I would, yes, I would. Uh, <laughs> whether the queen would have me in her presence dressed like that was something else. But, uh, but isn't it interesting that in the scriptures, let me just throw this in here while it's fresh, there is nothing, nothing in the scriptures, Old or New Testament, about what you need to wear it with a holy convocation when the people gathered. There was things the priest had to wear, okay, but then that's Old Testament. There's nothing, Old or New Testament, about what you wear when you gather as God's people. Um, now, we can deduce certain principles, maybe, but I think some of the legalism that has crept into churches has come from uh, your Sunday best. You know, there's, there's literally nothing in Old or New Testament that talks about dressing up when the people met together to worship God. Now, we can still talk about what would be good decorum and all of that, uh, but I think we need to avoid overstepping it. Anyway, all that's to say is the reformers 
said that the Old Testament priestly garments were to be gone. The second thing was they had the minister face the congregation as he broke the bread and the wine. So in the Roman Catholic Church, the priest turns his back on the congregation and he does his hocus pocus, which is where we get that little phrase from. I've now forgotten what the Latin means, but he has this hocus pocus, and it's a phrase in Latin about what he's actually doing with the bread and the wine. Okay, and it's all a mystery, and only the priest knows what's going on. Well, the reformers got rid of all of that. The minister faced the congregation, or in the Anglican tradition, the minister stands on the side of the table as he gives the institution and breaks the bread so that the people can see everything. Um, some uh, traditions had uh, the elders stand as a wall <laughs> in front of the table, fencing the table, taking things a wee bit far. Uh, they, they, you know, so they would determine who could come to the table. Um, and the other thing that changed was um, uh, they changed, the Roman Catholic Church had a stone altar, a marble altar, because it's a sacrifice. And so the reformers changed the altar to a wooden table because it's a meal, it's a supper, not a sacrifice. And so this piece of wooden furniture in front of us is significant. It's not, you're not coming for a sacrifice, you're coming for a meal. Now, what was also interesting is that um, the, 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 generally speaking, in the Reformation, uh, they came to the table, literally came to the table to eat. Uh, in the Dutch tradition, they would set out extra tables from the middle table and make it this long table, and 30 people would come forward at one go. The minister and the elders would sit on one side, and they would all eat bread and drink wine together. Then that 30 would get, get up and go, and then the next 30 would come, and they would eat and drink and go, because it's a meal. It's a supper. Um, we can get into this maybe in the in the next session, you know, is, is our giving the meal into the pew, uh, is it more like takeaway in the pew <laughs> than uh, an actual supper at a table? Okay. Now, I know we all do the, we all do the hold, it, hold the bread and we'll all eat it together. I think that's nice. It shows the unity. And yet, what are, we, what are we really doing at that point? We're all just closing our eyes and having our own little individual meal with Jesus. Whereas when you actually sit at a table or you have to come forward, you really are feeling like you're doing this with a whole lot of other people. Um, I'll get into it in the next session. But, <laughs> but there's going to be some serious changes in this church after this. Week. <laughs> uh, Athanasian creed coming to the table. What is, what is this Roman Catholicism coming in? Um, Okay, so that's what they did. And then, um, yeah, the words of institution were the big change as well. They got rid of all the Latin that was hi hiding it from the people and people didn't really know what was going on. And they, they spoke in the vernacular and they gave a word of institution explaining what the supper was. So when your minister does that at the front of church, th this has been recovered by the reformers so that you understand what you're participating in. Um, okay, so that was the, the sacrament. Um, oh, the other thing they did was sometimes another minister in the church would, would stand up in the pulpit or off to the side, and he would read Scripture while the people were coming forward. Um, John 13 to 17 was popular, and he would just keep reading it. 
and you know, they, they, there was, some of these congregations were very large. So as they were coming forward to eat the supper, they were just hearing the words of Christ from John 13 to 17. So perhaps another thing we can think about, uh, often I find myself when it's just pure silence, and I'm getting my little piece of bread in the pew, uh, my mind's going everywhere. Whereas if there was an element of singing or, uh, or, a or a spoken word from Scripture, maybe my mind would be better concentrated as I'm thinking about taking uh, the Lord's Supper. So we can get into the practicalities uh, later. Um, okay, praise and offering. The Reformers encouraged an element of praise after the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This was either a hymn, a prayer of thanksgiving, or a psalm, Psalm 103, was often sung, uh, praise the Lord for all his benefits, who forgives all your sins. That was often sung after uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and the idea was that the sacrifice on Christ, of Christ on the cross was to lead to a sacrifice of praise arising from our hearts. Um, now, some reformers also put an offering after the Lord's Supper, called the almsgiving offering, an offering for the poor, uh, or poor, as you say here, <laughs> for the poor, okay? And it was a reminder that he who was rich became poor for us, so that we by his poverty might become rich, and out of our riches in Christ, and how the Lord has blessed us, we ought to also give to the poor. And in some uh, Reformation services, the, the service would end with a dismissal. So they'd have the benediction, the minister would walk to the back or from the front, and he would give a charge. The final words they would hear would be a charge. Go out into all the world and serve Christ. Go out into all the world, love God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes they would say, go and remember the poor. Uh, so I think it's a, a beautiful thing. I don't know if you do it here in Presbyterian tradition, the church we're in, there's two offerings in the service when the Lord's suppers. There's the normal offering, and then there's the second offering for uh, mercy ministries that the deacons will distribute. Um, and so it's picking up this tradition um, uh, from Calvin of uh, almsgiving for the poor after the Lord's Supper. Okay, and then there was the charge and blessing at the end of the service of the word. Uh, or the service of the sacrament. The charge often came in the form of a post-sermon hymn. This was something that Luther changed in the Roman liturgy. The Roman ancient liturgy ended with the Nicene Creed, sung or the Gloria, but Luther introduced hymn singing after the sermon. And this was picked up by the other reformers. And the idea was that the hymn was, again, our response to what we've heard from God, or at the end of the sacrament, again, a response to what we've received. And it was like a charge sending us out uh, into the week. Uh, there was also the blessing, the benediction. Uh, many people think the benediction given at the end of service is like a prayer, uh, but I don't think that's true. I think the benediction is a pronouncement of blessing, not a, not a wishful prayer. May the Lord bless you, but the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. It is a pronouncement of God's blessing on the people, uh, not a wishful prayer. 
Um, and because it's a pronouncement and not a prayer, uh, you should not close your eyes and bow your head, uh, but lift your head up and eyeball the minister. Give him your eyes, and he should be giving you his eyes, okay, as he gives that benediction. Uh, I think it's good for ministers to memorize the benediction so that they can actually look at the congregation. Okay, no pressure, <laughs> Michael, if you, if you haven't been doing this. Give me tonight, like, the Lord bless you. You don't want to trip up on that one. Right. Um, but I, I loved it when we were in uh, Cambridge. There was a dear old elder, and the minister would say, uh, the minister and I in our benedictions would say, brothers and sisters, lift up your heads and by faith receive the blessing of the triune God. And every week this old man would go. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so that, that was the charge and the benediction at the end. All right, so let me just summarize. Uh, these are the key elements in worship that the reformers either recovered or refined or maintained from the liturgy of the ancient church in light of Christian scripture. Two parts to the service, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the sacrament. Uh, the liturgy of the word communicated the gospel in words. The liturgy of the sacrament communicated the gospel in the sign of the body and the blood of Christ in the bread and the wine. And it is not just all these elements in any order that makes for Christian worship. Uh, but it is those elements in a particular order, deliberate and structured, that makes for Christian worship, that communicates the gospel, because structures tell stories. And that structure and the structure of our worship tells the story of God's gospel. Um, the gospel, let me, let me put it like this, the gospel is not just preached in the church service. The gospel, the worship service itself preaches the gospel. So the gospel is proclaimed in the preaching, yes, but the service actually communicates the gospel as well. Uh, Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, uh, once said, let me hear you sing and I will tell you your theology. Um, well, I think we could say, let me see your liturgy and I will tell you your gospel. Because um, the structure of the liturgy tells the story of the gospel. Okay, I think we'll, uh, we'll close that off there. And uh, let me pray for us. And uh, then we'll have a break and reconvene in a bit. Father, in the beginning you made us uh, as creatures in your image to worship you. You made us homo liturgicus, homo adorans, worshiping men and women, adoring men and women. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to worship you better than we do, to adore you more than we do. Uh, we pray this, Lord, for our church services. We ask that ministers here would be encouraged as they reflect on how to worship as a church. Uh, but we pray you would encourage us as individuals who participate in worship each week, uh, that we would take this time in the week seriously, uh, that we would be on time, and that we would prepare ourselves for that time. And we pray, Father, as we participate in our church services, having heard the history of how you providentially reformed the worship of your church 
through the Reformation. We pray that you would help us to appreciate now more and more what it is we participate in each week and the order in which it takes place. And we pray that most of all you would help us and enable us to worship you in spirit and truth and that all glory would go to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.